you know, the pressure was was released a little bit. We have a commission. Something's happening. We're actually talking about it. It's not, it's not like it's a new concept. Michigan's literally been stable or losing population for about 50, 60 years. It's good to see that we're trying to do something about that now. Yeah. I'm still advocating for you to have a seat on that commission, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? All right. It's June. It's summer. We made it through Memorial Day weekend. June, a lot happening. June's Pride Month. So happy Pride to any of our listeners who recognize and celebrate that. Also, specifically this weekend, busy, well, last weekend too, busy weekends in Detroit. The Grand Prix was last last weekend, right? If we are not overtaken by smoke in the city of Detroit, then it's going to be a huge weekend. Last weekend, we had the Grand Prix. First time off of Belle Isle and back onto downtown streets for the first time in like 25, 30 years. I can't remember the exact number, but brought a lot of people downtown, which was great. And then Taylor Swift coming in hot this weekend to Ford Field. That, Two that, nights sold out. That, and uh, you know, I'm not like number one on the, and following the pop trends of the time being in that zeitgeist, but that is a, it's a big deal and it's a big deal for our industry. Yeah, absolutely. There's 100,000 people coming to town for that for that event, back-to-back sold-out nights. Um, so you're not a Swifty? You don't, you don't classify yourself as a Swifty? T-Swizzle? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. Always have been. But you're not going to the show. No, I mean, I don't have a spare $10,000 right. to get some seats, but yeah, I think it's going to be, I think Detroit's going to be hopping. I think that the concert should be pretty good. Are you a huge once and always, not anymore. What are you? On, on I have Taylor a Swift? long journey as a Taylor Swift fan. It has no one has time for that, but let's let's, 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 swizz- let's delve into this. It has swizzled out. Oh, you're definitely editing that out. <laughs> Got it. So, but actually, so June 11th, 2011, I'll keep this quick. I went down to go to her concert at Ford Field and there was so much going on in downtown Detroit. There was a Tigers game. There was something at like a museum, all this stuff. They, not to throw shade, but they weren't prepared we missed Who's they? the city of Detroit. I don't know. There was no parking available. We missed the show as a 17 year old. It was it was a bummer. I feel like you're holding Taylor responsible for this. I mean, she could have been more prepared. She could have been more prepared for the Ticketmaster thing that happened this year. Mm. Like, let's let's get into that. But anyway, this weekend, there is a Tigers game. There's also Pride Festival happening in downtown Detroit. So just saying a little PTSD. People need to be prepared. Book your hotels. There's a lot of hotels in the surrounding metro area, too, if anyone for some reason has not booked their hotel yet. We have talked to our friends in the space, Claude Molinari, shout out, head of uh, Visit Detroit. They are prepared. I think we have more capacity downtown than we did uh, to absorb what's going to be a huge weekend. Uh, it's going to be a great weekend for restaurants, great weekend for uh, hotels. Uh, some of the rates they're getting are premium uh, for this uh for this event. So great for Detroit. And listen, I, I tried not to be a Taylor Swift fan for years. I bow down. Total talent. I'm in. Yeah. Good music. Great show. She performs for three and a half hours. Her herself. That's a lot. And she's making, I, I've seen, isn't she making so much money? 14 million? 
some personally something on, on like this that. on just this tour. It's, it's good. It's decent. Yeah, I'll take it. All right, let's get into current events. Oh, I thought this was going to be only about Taylor Swift. I, I'm in. <laughs> I met I met her mom once. We can get into that. Wow, uh, we could, or we could just transition. All right, Pineapple Express. The Mackinac Policy Conference was last week on Mackinac Island. You were there. Johnny Mack, our two-time guest and VP of Government Affairs, was also there. How'd it go? What did you focus on? As was MRLA Chairman Billy Billy Downs, Downs. also in attendance. How could I forget? Great event. For those listening who don't know what the uh, Detroit Chamber of Commerce, excuse me, Detroit Chamber of Commerce Policy Conference is every year right after Memorial Day. It is on Mackinac Island. Grand Hotel is the central base, but really the entire island gets taken over by business leaders and elected leaders. And the whole idea is bringing all of these people together in a not in a an environment that's not the same as they might see each other on any other day of the year. And hopefully, it creates opportunity. It creates some collaboration, and and you have better outcomes theoretically from it. So we were up there trying to represent this, the hospitality industry. Well, a lot of big meetings uh, with elected officials up there uh, making the case that this this industry still is in need of some support as we talked to some legislators as they're nearing their appropriations decisions and trying to set the stage for what comes next policy-wise for the next few weeks, months in, in the Michigan legislature. So it's exhausting because you're usually going morning to night, but uh, it's it's a worthwhile event, and uh, I think we had a good time. Good. Another option or option bullet point that is on our outline, which ties into that, is it was announced the Growing Michigan Together Council. Wasn't that announced at that conference? You know, <laughs> we've talked a lot on this podcast about the demographic nightmare that is Michigan. It's not what this podcast is supposed to be about, but it definitely impacts this industry. I, we, let's just not go too far into it. I, we're going to have this conversation with our guests a little bit later. A commission is at least an acknowledgement that Michigan has a problem, that we need to, to deal with this thoughtfully and to prepare future generations for success because it doesn't feel like we're doing that right now. But a commission is, 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 is rarely an immediate answer, but it is something. And so I will, I will take that we are moving Moving the issue forward and having hopefully thoughtful conversations and, and some public policy that follows suit to get some consistency in what we're doing here and and something that can grow Michigan's population, which will help Michigan's hospitality industry. That it will. That was a much more tempered response compared to how hot you get on this topic every time we record a podcast. Yeah, the pressure was was released a little bit. We have a commission. Something's happening. We're actually talking about it. It's not, it's not like it's a new concept. Michigan's literally been stable or losing population for about 50, 60 years. It's good to see that we're trying to do something about that now. Yeah. I'm still advocating for you to have a seat on that commission, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Big news out of Chicago earlier this week. James Beard Award winners from Michigan to... Lindsay C. Green from Detroit Free Press won a James Beard Journalism Award for Emerging Voice. She's the restaurant and dining critic from the Free Press. We know Lindsay. We've talked to her several times. She is fantastic at what she does. It's good to see uh, the Free Press and she specifically getting recognized. Absolutely. And we have our guest today is from, it's not Lindsay, but 
from the Free Press. Also, Coldwater Kitchen, a Free Press film, won a James Beard Award for Best Documentary. We've talked about that documentary on this podcast a couple of times, all about the Coldwater Kitchen and uh, Chef Jimmy Hill and all the work he does at the Coldwater facility, prison facility. Yeah, go see that movie if you can. Our own Pro Star program, well documented in that documentary. So uh, it's it's worth a worth a watch, and the work that they have done there is tremendous. I think we should have an all staff viewing of the documentary. Like Let's a, do it. A lunch and learn. Okay, another story that I included in here. Not sure if you looked at it, but what's that supposed to mean? It. <laughs> Subtle, subtle shade. QR code menus are being shown the door. A New York Times article that has Justin Winslow written all over it. Well, I, you know, I just, a consumer, it is not a consumer's favorite way to experience most restaurants. And frankly, part of the reason we, we, we have this guest coming on today who vented her own frustration with QR codes. I felt the kinship. I've, I've known our guest for a long, long time, but this was, I was like, oh, this is, this is the segue into having her on. We can talk about uh, what she does at the free press, but we can also have this conversation about QR codes. And so you know, this is an industry that we know adapts quickly. They know what consumer sentiment is. And if, if this pushback's coming back hard, you're going to see more and more restaurants making the change away from QR codes. Yeah. The total number of scans has dropped 27% compared to 2021. Probably driven entirely by this podcast. And 75% of existing QR codes are essentially dormant. So congratulations. <laughs> do you do you feel differently? You haven't really weighed in. You, you've made multiple attempts to trigger me, usually <laughs> successfully, on this topic. Where you stand? I don't really care. I actually don't have an opinion, which is why you haven't heard one. Hmm. Either, either way is fine. Bringing up the menu, if it, it is the ones that are the worst, are the hardest, the most challenging, are the ones that aren't even really like mobile friendly, yeah. And so you're like pinching and trying to scan through the menu that's just like a PDF to find the items you might want to order. It's not, it's not great. I'll give you that one. I'll agree with you there. Okay. Did you have any topics you wanted to bring up for Pineapple Express? No, let's hit the plaudits. We've got a lot to hit on when we get to for fork's sake, and so well, let's save save some of our ammo for that. Fahey Schultz Berzik Rhodes PLC is Michigan's premier attorney for hospitality-related legal services. The depth and breadth of experience within the team enables them to serve as a one-stop resource for clients throughout the hospitality industry. Their diverse client portfolio includes national restaurant chains, regional restaurants, hotels, taverns, entertainment venues, golf courses, liquor stores, as well as breweries, distilleries, and wineries. They have the expertise to assist with corporate formation and structure, engaging new investors, assisting with local and state licensing matters, all aspects of liquor licensing and violations, real estate matters, including purchase transactions or leases, intellectual property protection, advising on and executing expansion opportunities through franchising or other growth vehicles, purchase and sale agreements, succession planning and planning and executing exit strategies. Clients also benefit from the experience and insight of lawyers who practice across the full range of legal fields, which intersect with the hospitality industry. When day-to-day employment law issues emerge, the experienced labor and employment attorneys are there to counsel and provide strategic advice. When threatened by legal action, the litigation attorneys are prepared and ready to defend clients' interests. Their full-service approach makes the firm uniquely positioned to help hospitality clients of any size. To find out more, contact Fahey Schultz Berzik Roads today by visiting www.fsbrlaw.com or calling their office at 517-381-0100. 
All right, Pineapple Plaudits. I have a few things here, and actually one that I didn't provide on this outline that came into our emails last night. DRI, which is Dave Dittenberg and his crew over in the Bay City area, is partnering with Zero Day and one of our programs through the Michigan Hospitality Foundation Restaurant Ready to open two food trucks powered by veterans. Absolutely. And we've been working with Zero Day as well for a while. Right. Uh, so that partnership is is great. And Dave, if it's a positive partnership, Dave Dittenberg is going to be engaged in it. So that's great to see in the Bay region, providing opportunities for veterans back and, and hopefully enhancing this industry at the same time. Absolutely. Two other ones that I put on here, the Olga's Kitchen Memorial or Olga Loison. Okay. Memorial Foundation distributed $50,000 in grants to three different or I'm sorry, four different individuals and companies to get started here in Michigan. So each women owned business was awarded just over $12,000 to build their company. This Memorial Foundation was created back in 2019 to provide assistance to aspiring women entrepreneurs who exemplify the same passion, ambition, and vision as Olga, the pioneer and founder of Olga's Kitchen. So it looks, it's a great organization. And I love Olga's. Have since I was a kid. Oakland Mall, Olga's Kitchen, still like memories from my youth. Do you have a favorite item on the menu at Olga's? Because I'll eat the white bean chicken chili all day long. I can't remember the name of it, but just like their pita wrap always, I mean, it never misses. Standard issue. You yeah. ever go to the one in Frandor? I do. Yeah. I do. Good one. I think it's their largest footprint Olga's in the state. Oh, really? Yeah. Most hmm. of them are a little smaller than that. Yeah. Always have a good experience there. Last one that I had on the list is Mission Point Resort recognized the two-year anniversary of, do you remember the wedding that was interrupted from the Brigadoon Cottage Fire back in 2021? Yep. Story went national. It was a big deal. Yeah. So it was a two year anniversary of that. Just as a reminder, Tony, who doesn't remember, there was a fire at a nearby cottage, interrupted a wedding. It wasn't at Mission Point, but Mission Point, the Island House, Pink Pony, all of these hospitality groups came together to keep the wedding going. But they they posted on social media, two year anniversary, same couple in the same place with the photo of them running with the burning in the background. Do you remember that? Yep. So it was them with their newborn baby two years later, like same, same post. It made me tear up quite a bit. It's pretty cool. So the wedding stuck. Yeah. Good. It worked out. Worked out nicely. <laughs> through, through the fire or there's some, there's something there. Let me do a callback to the last segment where we talked about being on the island. I got to see Mission Point, stopped over oh, yeah. and saw Liz and Mark Ware while there and got to see all of the updates that they've made it is nice over there beautiful yeah it is beautiful it's light uh maybe my favorite cocktail i've ever had on the island at their round bar yeah it had bourbon and grapefruit in it amazing wow yeah, yeah they totally remodeled their restaurant there and it has a great view now it does okay any uh, any other pineapple plaudits i think we're good let's move on For Fork's sake, there's a lot happening there. We're coming up on summer break, potentially, at the end of June. What's going to get Don't done? Don't say potentially. <laughs> Don't say potentially. It's It has to come. Fourth of sure. July, presumably. 
Yeah, we're you know we've talked about this in the past. It's peak budget season right now. They, we do not have what are called budget targets. This is the agreed upon number for what we're going to spend. This association has been advocating for some dollars, whether it's for Pure Michigan and making sure the travel tourism industry, hospitality has the kind of investment it needs to be successful through through Pure Michigan. So we have some some asks there. ProStar continues to be a fantastic opportunity to create. Uh, careers in this industry starting in high school. And I think there's a lot of buying on both sides of the aisle. So uh, we're, we're pushing for some opportunities there. And really, while we still have some federal resources, we continue to make the argument that the industry needs a recruitment training and training and education opportunity that to help it replace what was lost during the pandemic. So, you know, this association created its own training institute, the Hospitality Training Institute of Michigan. The TIM. The TIM or the H-TIM. And so good conversations there. We shall see. But these federal dollars uh, need to be appropriated and spent and, and they should be directed at this industry. We believe we've built something that can help this industry and, and, and help sustain a brighter future long term. So stay tuned. Maybe by the next time we do this podcast, we will understand where this budget is, but we still don't have targets. So we may be pushing pushing past the original second week of, of, of June timeline. We may be going to the very up to the 4th of July and, and let's hope not farther. What happens if, if they don't get it done by the end of June? Well, they're okay. The year doesn't officially take effect. The fiscal year starts October 1. Right. A million years ago when I worked in the legislature, we did miss that deadline and, and the state shut down and we were in session around the clock. I think that was 2007. I, th- I think we can avoid that scenario. It would be insane to me to think a, a party that has single rule, right? The, the Democrats have majorities in the House, the Senate, and the governor. If they, if they can't pull a, a budget together before that time, that would be concerning. I don't think we're going to run into that problem. I think we'll have something before the end of June, but mm. but stay tuned. we got a lot of work to do on that front. All right. Also, that came up this week, post-Labor Day school start. Yes. <laughs> An issue that has been around a long, long, long time, quick. Quick rewind, 2005 legislation was passed requiring schools, all schools K through 12, to start after Labor Day as a way to, as the Pure Michigan campaign was was launching in that decade, tying it to a post-Labor Day school store as a way to jumpstart the travel and tourism industry. And it was tremendously successful. A lot of infrastructure built because of that in this industry. A lot of people coming to the state of Michigan regularly now that weren't before because of that. And our argument continues to be it's not against school flexibility or local control. It's just you can't replicate the weather you get in July and in August. And to take one of those two months and eliminate it from the from from the equation is really challenging a lot of these travel and tourism based businesses, often on the coast, often up north, whose, you know, August is is uh, it, the, the term often used is it's like their Black Friday. And if you're going to miss that opportunity, that's the difference between being in the black or in the red for the year. And schools are creeping up earlier and earlier. Listen, my kid's school district is is an example. I mean, I think they start August 23rd. Uh, oh, that's pretty early. Coming back up. They're not even out yet, by the way, and they will be back August 23rd. It is very early, and that's you know that's creeping up two weeks before. So we're pushing uh, for a legislative solution. We know that there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that want to move past a post-Labor Day school start requirement, and, you're, and you see that in reality through a, what's called a waiver process. But if we're going to do this in totality, uh, our argument is can we, in August – 
eliminate school school days on Mondays and Fridays, allow for that last family vacation with a long weekend somewhere and, and allow some of the workforce. You know, we, we talked about teen employment last time around here, mm-hmm. right? 235,000 people uh, working in this industry, getting some of that, that life experience outside the classroom by working. Give them a little more time to get that before the, the school year starts as well. So we're hopeful. It's in the early process. We just had a hearing earlier this week in the House. It, that bill is a long way to go, and but that is that is our that is our argument. That is, I believe, the the best case scenario we can hope for on behalf of of this industry, and I think it's practical. Yeah, I've seen some coverage on it this week. A lot, actually, surprising amount of coverage in the news about it. And I think what's important is that the articles keep talking about how up or people keep talking about how up north schools can determine when they go back to school, and that's. That's not the only segment. Like, yes, for, I guess, the teen employment part, but it's for families like yours from mid-Michigan making plans to take that long weekend and go up north. They might not once the busyness of the school year starts. So I've just found that as a point of needing clarification in the coverage that I've seen. Yeah, there's a disconnect there that it's not just a workforce issue, but it is also a workforce issue for this industry, especially right now. So we're going to keep having conversations. We're working with our friends at the CVBs and, and really a lot of the tourism-based parts of the state to make to make that case that a compromise is is viable here. Yeah, sounds like some middle ground will be found, hopefully. Okay, on the federal side of things, I'll let you take the mic on this because there's a lot happening. So much on the federal front, but like anything in Congress, it moves at slower than snail's pace. So we'll take a little time to intro some of these just to put them on your radar, but don't go five alarm fire because these things are move at a very at a glacial pace if you will but yeah the credit card competition act was introduced this week the national restaurant association is part of a larger coalition uh, that's looking for a little more uh, a little more choice and competition in the in the swipe uh, the credit card swipe market out there there's a bit of a duopoly between the visa between visa and mastercard and it is driving up costs artificially for for merchants, small small businesses especially, and so there is some upside here. You're seeing you're seeing Republicans and Democrats unite on this issue. I think the argument in favor of small business is dramatically on our side, right? We have the, the better angels are on our side of this issue, and good luck to the banks, the credit unions, and the credit card companies to try to justify why some of the rates and the swipe fees they have are should be justified, uh, especially when cash is almost non-existent at this point. Right. You know, most of our restaurants are 90 plus percent card of some sort, meaning less than 10 percent cash. And that number is just only you know going to continue to go down. So it's something we're watching closely, something we're advocating on. I think we put a grassroots uh, effort out on this issue a couple of weeks ago. We'll keep making that push. It was good to see, though, the the support on both sides of the aisle. Right. When you know you have a divided Congress with Democrats in control of the Senate and Republicans in control of the House, that this may be something that could have legs on both sides. But the finance, the financial services industry is intense and they bring a lot of resources to the table. So that'll be a, a tough fight. The Essential Workers for Economic Advancement bill was introduced as well. We like to just call this the H2C. A lot of Michigan operators understand what the H2B is. And those temporary visa uh, laborers for this state come and then go back to their home countries. There is never even close to enough supply to meet demand. Mackinac Island is always the poster child for this issue, but there are plenty of places that are, are, are utilizing this temporary visa opportunity. But it is split amongst multiple industries and never 
stable enough to be useful to enough people in this industry. And we've never had workforce challenges to the degree that we have them right now. So this is a concept of creating a specific a specific waiver for hospitality, the hospitality industry, about 65,000 workers per year, which would be like doubling essentially the number that we're getting right now from H2B and, and having some temporary workers that we know are, are, are designated to this industry. So there's a lot of support with, from within this industry um, and we're having productive conversations, but anything involving even kind of immigration is a challenging issue. We, we continue to argue these are temporary visas. This is not immigration, but you get into that ballpark and, and it becomes a very complicated issue uh, in Washington, D.C. But we'll be there again in D.C. in a couple of weeks for the National Restaurant Association's Public Affairs Conference. This will be top of the agenda and a big discussion point for there as it was when we were uh, with AHLA a couple of weeks ago. If it gets across the finish line, What's the timeline for implementation? Or are we not even that far to know? I would love <laughs> I would I would love to have that problem right now. I think we're a long way from from implementation. Okay. New bills with new concepts have like a, a shelf life of ten years, right? Even good ones before they find their way across the finish line. It is rare unless it is an emergency to see something get across. Do I think it's gonna take that long? I don't, but we are we are building something seemingly from scratch to to, to create this for the industry. So but stay tuned. We're, we're, we're building the foundation. Yeah. You weren't joking when you said glacial pace. Yes. No, it's, it can be brutal. Third one, the Tipped Employee Protection Act was introduced. This is in response to some Federal Department of Labor regulations that went out dealing with dual jobs. Very frustrating. It, you know, if you... If if the SEIU and related organizations can't eliminate the tip credit through policy, they're going to try to use the the tools they have to make operating with tipped employees just insanely impossible, right? And so this dual jobs regulation going into effect, it changes how tipped employ- employees are paid because it categorizes them in different ways and forces anything that's not specifically tip producing as part of your job to require you to be paid differently and the ability to monitor and administer this as a restaurant. Think about that, right? It is, it is virtually impossible to track accurately or effectively whatsoever. So one of the examples that goes out, so picture, picture a bartender fulfilling a customer's request by grabbing a beer from the storeroom. That's tip producing work, right? Cause it's directly to the customer. However, when that same bartender retrieves a case of beer from the storeroom to replenish the bar to in future opportunities serve those customers that is under a different category and can't be qualified as tip producing work even though he's essentially making possible tip producing work for him and right and picture yourself in this in this restaurant or bar trying to manage when your employee is doing which of those categories and it is an impossible it is impossible to discern uh, effectively and it leaves open and, and, you know, the trial lawyers are just salivating, right? This, this creates an entire opportunity to, to have litigation against this industry on this issue as they, as they try to find the right way to administer this. So this bill is all about simplifying how tipped employees are qualified and some of the verbiage around it that would eliminate some of that, that, that DOL regulation. Is this the kind of like the 80-20 rule that We've talked about in the past, or is that totally different in terms of when you 80% of your work was tip related or that whole designation? Is that similar in concept? Similar in concept. 
similar an origin story, taking that to the next level, right, with, with this Department of Labor. It sounds like an administrative headache for the employee, because ultimately that burden of, you know, clocking or whatever that solution is, which I don't even know what it would be, uh, is going to fall to the employee. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to deal with that. No one would. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's, I mean, I get that like the, the unspoken word here, right? The unspoken part of this conversation really is, is the, well, if we're not going to find a way to uh, eliminate the tipped minimum wage right. as, as part of how restaurants play, we'll make it so onerous that they will not want to have tipped, tipped employees. employees at all. Yeah. Ugh. All right. <laughs> Does that wrap up for Fork's Sake? Actually, that whole story you just told is the reason we have For Fork's Sake as the, the oh, segment title. Nice. Thank you. All right. Are we ready to get into our interview? Let's do it. All right. We welcome Emily Lawler, state politics and government editor for the Detroit Free Press to join us today. Emily Lawler is the state government and politics editor for the Detroit Free Press. She has reported on Michigan politics and policy for more than a decade, covering state departments, the legislature, and the governor's office. She previously worked as an editor and reporter at MLive and a reporter at Mars News. When she's not working, she is biking or baking. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I like pineapple, so we're off to a great start. Yes. I'm excited. Emily, thanks for making the time to be with us. I've known you since you were brand new at MERS as a very thorough reporter back in the day. And, and now you were like the big deal in Michigan political reporting. Um, very thorough is a very nice way to put that. Um, <laughs> definitely MERS was a lot of minutia. So <laughs> I really, I really value that experience because I really got to learn the ins, the outs, and all the, all the other parts of the legislative process. And uh, I've been through the ringer on a few very, very boring subjects. And now I'm really lucky that I get to um, have that in-depth, no- in-depth knowledge, but also be able to sort of uh, look at the bigger picture and peel back some layers for for our readers throughout Michigan. We'll give a quick bio background for for how you got to where you are right now. So what's the rundown of of your experience before you got to here and how it prepared you to be the politics editor at the Free Press? Yeah, totally. So I went to Michigan State University, which has a really good, thank you, go white, (laughs) which has a really good um, journalism school. It was in kind of a weird flux when I went there because they were sort of reckoning with the fact that digital journalism was coming in a way that, you know, was going to disrupt the industry and of course has. But yeah, so after MSU, um, I did Capital News Service while I was there, got recruited to MERS for an internship, spent a few years with MERS covering state departments, like all the boards that you probably never hear of, like, you know, agriculture department has a board and, uh, you know, the state education board has all day meetings, which I've experienced on multiple occasions. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot dues. of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like machinations, the admin board, something that gets interesting, like once every five years randomly. But I was just sort of, like I say, steeped in all the minutia. And then I went to th- from that to MLive, which is obviously like 
much broader audience, much more targeted toward a broad audience, not as targeted toward capital insiders. But like I say, it was a good base layer of all that knowledge. So I was a, actually a business reporter at MLive and then a um, political reporter at MLive and then moved into being a lead reporter, which was sort of like a hybrid reporting editing position, and then moved into being a full-time editor over MLive's politics and public health teams. And then the free press knocked on my door and I said, oh my gosh, the Detroit Free Press is a dream job. <laughs> so, um, And I will say, I actually like, as a child, wrote a letter to the Detroit Free Press asking how to become a journalist and their ombudsman at the time replied to me and it was very encouraging. And for me, it felt like really a homecoming to my hometown paper. Wow, that's a great story. I like that. Yeah, that's a full circle <laughs> moment right there. Yeah, it really was. And um, it was funny because I actually like my parents, I, the free press had picked up like a random article of mine when I was at MERS. Um, that was like kind of a cool feature. And my parents had like clipped it out of their newspaper and written on it like Emily's first free press byline. And at the time I was like, okay, guys, like it might be my last free press byline, but I'm very lucky that it hasn't been. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's very cool. And speaking of the free press, since we're, we're giving the accolades, you guys cleaned up at the James Beard Awards earlier this week with the Restaurant and dining critic Lindsey Green receiving that journalism award and Coldwater Kitchen, which ties into our industry. That was a free press documentary, won best documentary award, too. So congratulations yeah. to all of you on that. Oh, thank you. And I, you know, I shouldn't take credit for my colleagues' amazing work, but 100% <laughs> but I will brag about them for as long as you'll let me. But <laughs> Yeah, Kathy Kay was really instrumental in the Cold Water Kitchen and also putting on the Detroit Free Film Festival that that featured that and other great films, um, a lot of premieres and exciting things that I'm still very sad I missed. I actually got COVID that week and it was like, oh, no. <laughs> I know, and I, I felt terrible. I really wanted to head over and I was so sad I couldn't. And then, yeah, if you're not subscribing to the free press to read Lindsay Green, you should be. Um, she's amazing. Her restaurant critique is far broader than that name would even suggest, right? Like sometimes you're reading a Lindsay Green column and you're learning about the racial dynamics of the restaurant industry. Sometimes you're learning about who a particular dining scene is for and who it isn't for. Uh, sometimes you're learning about her experiences as a Black woman who's a restaurant critic um, in Detroit and just the the depth and breadth of her coverage has been really nice to see recognized on a national um, basis, not just by the James Beard contest, of course, but as a Pulitzer finalist as well. Yeah, 100%. Lindsay really does push the boundaries of what you expect to see and read from a restaurant critic in ways that I think has been really interesting and built a huge, a huge readership for her. So you're right. We are, we are free press subscribers, obviously, and, oh, uh, and, and we follow very closely. <laughs> My question is, have you had a chance to rub it in Chad Livengood's, your counterpart of the Detroit News' face, that that he did not win any James Beard Awards yet? Oh, wait, he's not involved in the restaurant scene, is he? No, but he's your counterpart on the politics side at the news. And I just didn't know if you guys had a friendly rivalry that you could uh, that you could engage in here. 
Oh, I, I love talking with Chad. And we were actually on a cold oatmeal together a while back. And it was really fun to sort of hear our different perspectives on the, the same industry. Um, but no, unfortunately, um, I'm not rubbing any awards in his face. I, I don't know if that's really my style, but <laughs> they do great work over there. You can just uh, send I, him this clip and we'll do it for you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, the Free Press and Detroit News both have amazing political teams. And I, I feel really lucky to be working at a time where the press corps is so robust. Nice. That was very diplomatic yeah. uh, of you and appropriate. <laughs> I'll give the shout out Cold Oatmeal. You were on the Cold Oatmeal pod. We are in the Cold Oatmeal studio right now. So there you go. Small world. Yeah. Okay. Last week, you were on Mackinac Island for the Detroit Chamber Policy Conference. I was for a little while as well. Uh, what were your main takeaways or what was your, what was your, uh, some of the some of the experiences you had while you were on the island last week. Yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting, um, sort of the the focus of the conference on some of these issues that you wouldn't have thought that a business community would be necessarily engaged in, and that they've sort of been forced to be engaged in just by sort of the current economy and the current market forces and the current talent forces, frankly, that are that are driving the state. So, you know, past conferences, for instance, we've seen like a big focus on education as something that, you know, can attract people to Michigan and also prepare people for jobs. This conference kicked off with a panel on housing, which I thought was fascinating. Got to hear a little bit from the Cherry Republic uh, president about some of the challenges of housing workers in northern Michigan, and also just the challenge of like a succession plan. When you're in northern Michigan, there aren't many young people around. And, you know, one of the points that he made that I thought was just something I hadn't thought of before is that, you know, <laughs> that a lot of business owners up there are aging and looking for the next generation and just coming up dry in part because of the housing crisis. That means, um, you know, not many young families are, are really in that region. Yeah, so true. That's We are part of the housing coalition and the workforce challenges we have in this industry, restaurant, hotel, tourism up north are acute. They've become a statewide issue in, in recent years, frankly, for, for this industry. But you're right. It, it's been, but up there, it is the, the, the challenge in like a Traverse City or a Harbor Springs area to uh, be able to house your workforce to meet the demand in peak season is virtually impossible. Yeah, and just the seasonal nature too, right? Like, unfortunately, uh, up north is in high demand among both tourists and seasonal workers at the exact same time, right? <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, there's just a, and then the phenomenon of second homes too, where people are, you know, sitting on a lot of real estate that really isn't engaged in in the workforce. It's just a, a vacation kind of uh, use, so. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, a lack of young families being up there. And overall in Michigan, we're facing a very slow or non-existent population growth, which ties into that too. And it was at that conference that they announced the Growing Michigan Together yeah. Council. Yeah. Um, yeah. That And I found that interesting. It's something we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Justin gets heated on the topic. Oh, oh, let's get some heat. I want to know. I just it's not new. I mean, I'm glad that we are finally talking about it. I, I get triggered every time. I fall in the strap every time. I've been talking I mean, I feel like I've been alone or, or definitely not, hasn't been at the front that we have a demographic crisis that's slow playing itself out. But I know that you know that and it's been a long time coming, but I'm I'm glad that we are addressing this in a holistic and, and statewide way through this council 
What are your thoughts on it? Do you think it will work or produce positive results? Do you think it will change policy outcomes? And 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 we ask this all the time, you know, she's a young professional here, you're a young professional here. Like, why do you stay in, in Michigan as well? So that's like five questions <laughs> at once, but I want I wanted to lay out the the stage for you to then go go off and prevent me from being triggered for a little while, frankly. <laughs> Well, I want to validate your historical point, which is, you know, we saw this big push from Whitmer at the Mackinac Policy Conference um, to grow Michigan in Governor Snyder's tenure. He had a push to grow Michigan's population to 10 million by the 2020 census, which was accomplished. Um, And then, you know, under Granholm's administration, there was a pretty serious population fall at that point. And she had launched a Cool Cities initiative to try to boost that up, I, you know, there was a fall at that point. So, but, you know, it's not just Governor Whitmer who's been interested in this. I think that every governor in in the past 20-ish years now um, has recognized the need for uh, Michigan to do something to address its population. We're, you know, a graying state and that doesn't serve our economy very well. But in terms of, you know, what could attract people here? I do think that the governor's approach seems really multifaceted, really broad, like looking at things like education, looking at things like infrastructure, looking at things like job placements and um, what kind of economic opportunities exist for people here. So, you know, those are obviously, I think we know that those are all ingredients that sort of go into the mixing bowl and help someone decide where to live. (laughs) So I do think that, you know, it's a more holistic approach than maybe we've seen in the past and and involves a lot of different subjects, a lot of different agencies, a lot of different stakeholders, of course, only has six months, I think, to come up with a plan to fix all those things, which is going to be a breakneck public policy (laughs) case. Time is of the essence. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And um but I'm really curious to see what they come up with. And, you know, I think that when we look at their plan, we'll know whether it's comprehensive enough to move the needle. So I, I think that that's something I'm really looking forward to. In terms of, you know, being in Michigan, I I have family here. So that's a, a big driver for me. And I think a lot of other young people, especially I've noticed people who might move out of state and then have kids and want to come back because childcare is an acute crisis almost everywhere. And if you have family as a backstop, I think that takes a little bit of that pressure off and living far away from any of those resources that can be tough. So I I definitely have uh, noticed a few friends move back in state. For those reasons, you know, Governor Whitmer mentioned that Michigan uh, will probably be a climate refuge. I think that's true to some extent. We're already seeing some real estate get snapped up, particularly in northern Michigan and the UP, um, by people who have that as sort of a backup plan, who may be living in a less sustainable place or a place without a um, significant water supply or with significant water supply issues. I do think that, you know, perhaps Michigan could um, rank on a lot of people's destination lists if they're coming from sort of a futurist perspective. And 100%. then that's why I'm a, I'm a long-term optimist on Michigan. Even if we screw everything up on the policy, I think the changing weather and the fact that we just have an abundance of water where many places do not make this will make this a desirable place, whether it's not to the back end of this century or whenever that, that, that opportunity will will be available to us. I'm a little more concerned, maybe a little more pessimistic in the short term, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. The states that do economic de- development the best right now seem to be single-party rural states, 
but on both sides of the aisle. So Texas and Florida fit into this description on one side, but California does as well on the other, that if you look through the top 10, these are not states that are that people consider purple for the most part, they, that fluctuate back and forth. And because Michigan feels like it is a state that is uniquely close to 50-50 and goes back and forth in, in terms of who's in charge and making public policy, that that's a challenge for, for continuity and consistency. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think you've seen the Democratic majority get a lot done on sort of these big, big ticket projects um, in the first quarter, really, of this year. They distributed a lot of money to a lot of big projects. And so, you know, I think that the coalition might be fracturing a bit. You know, I think the Democrats have had a lot of votes that they've all hung together on. Um, we saw one Democrat break away from one of the big economic development deal of votes and uh, Republicans have to come over. I think that Republicans in general are a little reluctant on some of this stuff. I think they have some questions. I think they're especially concerned about companies with connections to China. That's something that they've raised pretty frequently in the last few months here. But, you know, also you have people like um, I talked with Eric Nesbitt, the Senate minority leader at the, the policy conference. And, you know, he was like pretty clear that his record's been consistent. He really hasn't been for these subsidies for a really long time. And, you know, throughout his career, he's demonstrated that these things are, aren't really a priority for him. And um, and they continue to not be something he believes should be <laughs> happening. So, right. you, you know, I, I do think that there's some political ideology that's sort of starting to fracture. And you've seen some Dems recently come out and kind of question the structure of some of these deals and sort of the, the value of some of these deals. And I, I think that the legislature is becoming less and less interested in being a rubber stamp here and really might have um, some more some more say in the process, some more um, vetting, some more due diligence, and frankly, some more community input. I think that's a piece that's kind of come, come to haunt <laughs> some of these projects is, you know, you have pretty significant opposition from some of the communities they've been incentivized to cite in. Yeah. And speaking of topics that trigger people on this podcast, what? the origination of inviting you onto the onto this episode was back in March. You tweeted about a list of changes from COVID times that you believe are no longer associated with COVID and are now just money saving tactics. Justin <laughs> saw that and was triggered and said, let's debate this on the podcast. So some of the things that were listed were restaurants scaling back operating days and hours, housekeeping, not servicing rooms daily. What? Let's unpack that a little bit. What? First of all, what experience led you to tweet that out? Well, Emily, let me let me let me in my own defense here. You and I are decidedly on the same page on one of these issues, but I'm. you, you can talk uh, as you will. But when it comes to QR codes, you and I are in sync uh, on, 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 on their value or complete lack thereof within the industry. But please, please share your perspective. You know, you know it's funny, but um, I I found the workaround to QR codes. You just bring someone over 80 to the restaurant with you and they don't even matter. <laughs> like the menus come out immediately. They dust them off. Um. <laughs> I like that. That's smart. Yeah. So my grandpa's my best dining partner right now. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I uh, I don't know that there was even a specific experience, but I think that most of those things are coming down to a talent and a staffing issue rather than a COVID issue, right? <laughs> um, so correct, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just 
you know, I sort of think that there's this like blanket industry of excuse still of like, but COVID and, you know, at the same time, they're telling you, for instance, uh, you know, you go to a hotel and they say like, per our new COVID cleaning policy, we don't check people or we don't clean rooms every night. We only clean them at the end of the stay, whatever. Um, and of course, the beginning of the say, <laughs> but, you know, and by the same token, you know, you hear that's because of COVID, but all the COVID cancellation policies are gone, right? Like if you have a COVID problem, you don't get any grace. <laughs> right. So I, I do think that there's a little bit of uh, that that's been going on in the industry. But like I say, I mean, I, you know, I think that really we've gone back to a talent problem instead of a, a, a pandemic problem with a lot of these issues. I think that a lot of hotels um, just can't find the staff to clean rooms, for instance, um, on on the schedule that they had kept before the pandemic. And of course, inflation has meant that prices of everything have rocketed at the same time. And, uh, you know, same with restaurants. I think they're having ch- trouble staffing the, the days and hours that they might have been able to in a different economy. But again, I think that ties more to the current historically low unemployment rate <laughs> than necessarily anything stemming from the pandemic at this point. Yeah, I think you're right. The restaurants certainly took advantage of the opportunity to scale back, right? Hours keep creeping longer and longer and longer, and it gets harder and harder to want people to want to work those hours that are beyond that sort of peak hours, right? Like I worked the 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift at Pizza House when I was in college. Not my oh my favorite, gosh. Not my I favorite worked, shift. <laughs> I worked 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. at Rice Kitchen. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> Another way we're bonding, Emily. I like that. So, I, it, but but the scale back of hours was, was, you know, for a couple of years, hospitality employees got to watch employees work from home exclusively and now work from home more than ever before. I'd be like, why am I working here till 2 a.m. or 10 or or midnight when there's almost no one here? And so it's given, it's given the opportunity if I think for restaurants to scale back some of those hours and, and, and people, diners, customers adapting to, to diminished opportunity, but finding those times that are, are, you know, it's, it's going to be denser. It's going to be more profitable during those limited hours, but you're going to have a happier workforce. And it's finding that balance. That's been interesting for the industry. Yeah. I actually went out to dinner on Memorial day and I felt awful. Like ours was the only table at this whole establishment. And I had called beforehand to be like, Hey, you guys open. And they were like, yeah, like, do you plan to come in? And I think it was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Please come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think that a customer behavior has changed a little bit too, or we've gotten less predictable as customers, which of course can't be easy for owners. But, you know, the other the other factor is just wages um, have gone up for businesses, but they're sort of in this like, you know, race with inflation in terms of how people are actually experiencing their their lifestyles and how workers are actually experiencing their lifestyles. So, you know, I, I feel for the mom and pop restaurant, but, you know, when McDonald's is advertising at $17 an hour, you've got to be somewhere around there, right? Right. right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Really. <laughs> Solved it. Smoothed it all over, you know? Well, check, yeah, I'm like, I'm box. like, the, the woodshed portion of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did, I, did I survive it? <laughs> so it. so With far. Grace. Yes. <laughs> and you dabble yourself, I will say, actually, because I'm about to bring up your cookie making career, but I worked the 8 p.m. to 
4 a.m. shift at Insomnia Cookies in college. Wow. Oh my gosh. In we Mount Pleasant. Created wares. Oh, okay. You weren't close enough. <laughs> no, I was not. I was not. But you, so you dabble in culinary creations yourself with your cookie making, the cookie press. I've actually ordered from you before just as a consumer who follows you on Instagram. Are you still operating the cookie press? And what, you know, what has that business taught you on this side of the industry? Yeah, you know, it's been, it, it was a rude awakening. Here's my cookie press history. First of all, I consider myself like semi-retired at this point. Okay. Um, I do still take like, you know, occasionally like a friend will be having a baby shower and I'll say, I'll make you cookies instead of bring the present. That is most of what I do now. It's <laughs> a good approach. Yes. And occasionally I'll have a flash sale where I, you know, like bake however much I have time to bake, but I uh, don't have as much baking time as I would like these days. But during the pandemic, I had a ton of time on my hands, as you may imagine, as we all did, as we were staying at home. And 2021 was actually like my peak cookie baking year. And I was, I think I was too good at it. Um, like it got to the point where I was like, wait, Emily, like you have a job. <laughs> Do you really need another job? I think I put out 150 something orders that year. Wow. True so- story. I, I believe I, the MRLA tried to hire. We that was our yeah, oh, 2021 yeah. was our hundredth year anniversary of the association. We wanted to have some cookies made, and you're like, and I reached out. And you're like, you're gonna have to. You you need to email me several months ago for for that order to possibly be in the realm. That's okay. how popular you were in 2021, which is why you know how many people are are now upset with you for walking back the cookie press because you were like the most per- popular person in town because the quality, the quality well, and really, visual quality of those really cookies was great. Ridiculous. Like, no, I was, I was baking cookies like, you know, okay. So it's not scalable, right? Like my little hands have to touch all these things. And, <laughs> like, and my little hands only have so many hours in a day. Uh, like I say, it's so like 150 orders. It's like, I was putting out an order almost every other day. Right. Wow. Then, yeah. I was turning down more than half of the inquiries. I got. And so I like, which made me feel bad. Right. So I don't know. I just, I felt like I hit this ceiling of, you know, what I, unless I wanted to be a full-time cookier, which I don't believe I have the time or patience for it. And also, as I said, it's also not scalable. Right. <laughs> but, Unless I had, uh, you know, the full-time capacity, I think I kind of reached a point where I was like, I think I have to roll this back a little bit. But I did learn a lot and I learned a lot about, you know, driving business, frankly. I learned a lot about social media, how to use that to your advantage, but it got to be quite a bit. (laughs) You can always, you can always bring it back and you will be welcomed by the Lansing community with open arms. So it's always an option. I will say my day job benefits. I love to bring cookies to the office. So (laughs) there you go. Speaking of uh, your hobbies, bicycling is another hobby that the two of you share. Yeah, I'm so happy we get to actually go into this space here. I know Emily Lawler is a an avid cyclist. I'll just uh, sit back and listen. <laughs> as am I. We have shared this. We have like literally crossed each other on the road randomly on bikes. We're just like, wave. Oh, hey, Emily. Uh, and and by the way, like not even near the capital, just randomly on, on, on long rides, maybe on the uh, Lansing River Trail. You're passionate about it. Tell me a little bit about how you got into cycling and uh, and why. Oh, okay. How I got in is fun. So in 2011, I graduated college. I was working for MERS and they told me that I didn't get any vacation for my first year. And so I should take some off 
like some time off before I started, like between college and starting there full time, I was already an intern. And I was like, that is very wise advice. I will do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had like roughly $1,200 in my savings account. And I um, spent roughly $1,200 on a bike. (laughs) It's an investment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be fair, I rode it for the next 11 years. Um, and I just got a new bike a couple of years ago. It's very nice. All right. What's your, um, what, what are you riding now? So right now I ride a Jameis steel frame with like the best components, gravel bike, Brooks leather saddle and like cool leather grips. And so I love it. It's a great bike. Um, gravel biking, I just decided was necessary for Michigan roads. Like I was on a road bike for 10 or 11 years and it was a great bike. I went through so many tires. (laughs) I just, you know, I kept hitting, I kept hitting these, uh, these potholes. I kept like running into sharp objects. My, actually my best flat or like, just like the most classic flat you can get on Mackinac Island is I got a sliver of horse hoof in my tire at the MPC one <laughs> wow. year. Yeah. And so I had to, you know, drag my limpy bike back home all the way down state. <laughs> but yeah, the gravel tires, like gravel bikes are super, they're increasing in popularity. They don't really slow me down. I'm not super fast to begin with. I just stay on the bike for a long time. And I love my gravel bike. <laughs> That's a good sell because I've been trying to repurpose. I've got a Cannondale Synapse, which is a road yeah, bike, but it's a little more flexible. That's what my first one was. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's I'm trying to see if I can just convert it to a gravel bike because you're right. It's a little more functional on, on a lot of different Michigan spaces. I feel less comfortable by the day, frankly, just doing long open road rides. At the risk of totally devolving into like super deep bike <laughs> chat territory. We're there. We're there, guys. <laughs> I did Dalmac on my Synapse and like it had to be like 2019, I think. And my front derailleur broke and I felt so betrayed. Like I was hitting like, you know, the day that's like they call it the wall and it's like a ton of elevation. Yeah. And I did have day. half my gears like terrible. Right. I had the little I had the bike mechanics on the route look at it and they would fix it and it would work for like one shift and then I'd be back to broke. <laughs> so Anyway, my gravel bike only has a single front gear. There is no derailleur to break in the front. And that that was a little bit of a response to my trauma of Dalmac. <laughs> there you go. For those who don't even know what she's talking about, Dalmac is a is a road biking race, not a race, but it's a ride from Lansing to Mackinac Island or to, to the Mackinac Bridge yeah. uh, over four or five days, depending. And that third day that you're talking about, you're going 90, 92 miles, give or take. And there is so much uphill. The wall is brutal. It is it, <laughs> to not have your front trailer. That's that's a rough day. I'm feeling for you now, four years later. Thank you. Thank you. I, I was actually thinking about signing up this year, but again, I'm, I'm living through some of that trauma still. So. <laughs> We need to get some sponsors together and coordinate. If we're going to be on the island for this public policy conference and you've got no cars and an eight mile track of the island, we need to get some corporate sponsors of an actual ride at that conference. We got to figure something out. We need to talk. I would love to. And I actually did escape for a a cycle around the island this time around. So Nice. All right. All right. That's in the that's in the to do list. I like that. All right. Before we go, even we could nerd out for a long time on this. And, and Emily's giving me the, are we really uh, going to keep going on the bikes? But we will move on. We'll hit lightning round. Our favorite way to uh, to end. Uh, hopefully our Emily gave 
you a heads up on, on some of these questions because uh, we're going to hit them. They're going to they're become fast and furious. Emily, you are up. Okay. Don't give away I'm the ready. secrets of the lightning round that we <laughs> give them beforehand. <laughs> you blew it. All right. Lightning round. What is the last song you listened to? I've been listening to Taylor Swift on repeat. I'm not going to the concert, but I can afford Amazon Music to listen to it. <laughs> and that's about it. Yeah, we talked about that at the intro of this episode about how hotels are sold out in Detroit for this weekend. Oh. What is the last show that you streamed? The Diplomat on Netflix. Very yes, good. Yes, I just finished it. it was yeah, good. I, I was a fan. Yeah. Which is good because Netflix, right? We we talk I, a lot about how I think Netflix is a B minus and the algorithm only makes average to below average shows, but that one is above average. Agreed. There you go. It's been a lot of Netflix drama in the office this week. <laughs> um, what is your favorite tourism destination in Michigan? Muskegon. Oh. You get that answer ever? No, I like that answer. Most people don't say Muskegon. Why? So hit, hit me on the why Muskegon. Easy access to water, cute downtown, brewery in the downtown, and awesome bike trails. Just like you can bike to the next, you know, two or three towns. That's true. No problem, no cars. That is true. We're going to be, I'm taking the family to a conference in Wisconsin. We're going to take that ferry that you put your car on yeah. and get around to Muskegon and go across. Uh, so no, that's going to be either fantastic uh, or terrible. There's also a bike trail that goes all the way from Muskegon to Grand Rapids. So that's a good connection. I'd that's a that. good trail. You got to get the, you got to do the lake to lake. Oh, I don't know if I've done that. You start at the Cal Haven on one side and you go all the way across. Oh, I can't even remember uh, I exactly. Did a, I did a very approximation of that in 2020. Cause like everything was closed. Like it was before there were hotels open or anything. And so I did an approximation where like we went and like camped in some friends yards, but it had to be like people in places we knew. So right. <laughs> Just I like that. someone's front yard. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds cool though. An informal coast to coast. I like that. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite Michigan brewery or specifically craft beer? I am a Bell's Oberon fan. That's what's in my fridge right now. And also the variations are pretty decent. Just saying, if you're looking for a mango experience. Oh. Hmm. Good to know. We'll get you some hospitality whenever we make it. We are committed to <laughs> making a pineapple infused beer and calling it hospitality. That's think? a great idea. I will say like IPAs lose me a little bit. So I hope the IBUs aren't too high on your hops. It will not. <laughs> I think we were, I think we were thinking IPL. Oh, okay. A little lower. We'll gotcha. get you a case. We'll get you a case when the time comes. <laughs> it could be the sponsor of our uh, Mackinac bike ride. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I'll take for it. <laughs> last question. What is your go-to biking trail? I'm on the river trail more than anything. I used to do a ton of road riding and drivers are scaring me lately. So congrats, you've scared me. (laughs) Another reason to switch to a gravel bike. I like it. All right, Emily Alala, thank you for making the time. Uh, Thank you for all the reporting you do. We are big fans and we consume all of it. Uh, So thanks for spending some time today with What's With The Pineapple podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) 